Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. This week, for our last episode of the year, we're doing something a little different. I'm here with the show's producer, Teresa Gaffney, to look back on the first year of the podcast and remember some of our favorite moments. Hello. Yes, thank you. Hi, Mom and Dad. Uh, <laughs> I am here because I have uh, been dying to get Pat on the other side of the mic, and so it's finally happening. I'm going to ask Pat some questions. We're going to play some clips of our, our favorite moments, some good episodes, some highlights. So, Pat, I wanted to ask you just a few like kind of general questions first. Like, what what were you expecting when we kind of came up with this podcast idea and and asked you to host it? Like, were you excited? Were you nervous? You mean, what was I thinking when you sprung the idea on me <laughs> <laughs> to be a little more accurate? Mm, I can't comment on that, but sure. <laughs> uh, I thought it was an interesting idea. I have, uh, until starting this, I was never a big podcast listener, although I like the concept of it. So when I heard about it, I thought it was an opportunity to actually meet some of the people that I've been corresponding with for years and have a real conversation with them that wasn't in email. And knowing that, as I've always said, I have a face for radio, <laughs> it was a perfect medium um, for me to do outside of print or electrons. Our first ever recording uh, with Jay Baruch, we hadn't really done any practice and uh, <laughs> we got Jay on the ne phone. Neither had Jay. Yeah. And I don't know. Like, what do you remember from that first recording? Uh, I, I remember struggling a little bit with um, how to ask questions supposedly in person by somebody on Zoom. And Jay had said, and I remember him telling us this, that he had gone down the day after and was talking with his wife about the podcast not sure I'm quoting him directly, but it's close. And she said, Jay, don't do this. Don't do this, meaning fret about the podcast. So he contacted us. We chatted. And he used the term, can we take a mulligan, which is a golf term. <laughs> and, um, and since it was the first tee, we took the mulligan. We've grown a lot. And so looking back at the, at the year we've made... 43 episodes originals and we've we've done a, a couple reruns and this will be a I think this counts as episode 44 this is legit um what's some what are some like really memorable moments well let's go back to a recent one I was talking with Johan Sonnen and uh, Annie Lakey Becker about the amount of health information that's collected about all of us and as we were talking Annie's Alexa connected thermostat <laughs> heard that she said something about searching for health information and the thermostat, which had obviously been listening into our conversation, piped up and said, do you want me to search about health information? We are generating health data from our Alexa searches or our, you know, Google voice searches. We're generating health data, you know, with our Apple watches and our Fitbits. It's from every single one of your like Google searches. Um, and, on the web. 
According to C.A.P. There we go. This is exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> did 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 you did you pay your device to do that? <laughs> Case in point. It was a perfect um, a perfect moment to illustrate something that none of us could have ever really thought up. Very scary. <laughs> <laughs> it was very scary. Yeah, that was definitely a, a memorable one. Are there earlier conversations that you remember like very fondly or had had kind of similar moments? Well, I, uh, there are a number I, I remember possibly more than others. And as Teresa alluded, like first opinion pieces, these podcasts are all my children. You never have a favorite child. So um, Teresa has pushed me to come up with my favorites in the past and I'm still resisting. Um, <laughs> and I think that's okay. So all of these podcasts are done remotely. Teresa's been in Queens. I've been in Jamaica Plain, which is a neighborhood in uh, one of Boston's neighborhoods. Alyssa's been in Beverly. And so we've all been, and the, the guests are from wherever. Um, and we've, we've connected by Zoom to at least see each other as we're having these conversations. By chance, in the middle of the summer, there was a big decision about Adjahelm. It's a new drug for Alzheimer's disease. The FDA approved it with very controversial uh, decision. And by chance, one of the luminaries of the scientific research that was underpinning Adjahelm, Dennis Selko, he's a researcher at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, is a neighbor of mine. So I asked him if he'd be interested in being on the podcast and would he come down? Could we do it in person? I was so excited. And he did. Do they reject aducanumab out of hand or do they give it a chance to have many patients get it while Biogen does a, what's called a phase four mm -hmm. trial? So with what you're describing, it sounds like there are drug companies all over the place with their eyes open trying to figure out what's the next target. Exactly. And one of the very interesting things about the reaction to Monday's news about the FDA is that a sizable fraction, by no means all, of the Alzheimer experts across the globe were disappointed that the FDA decided to uh, allow this to be approved because they said it's a split jury between the two trials Biogen ran and we need a third clean trial to figure that out. Hmm. Um, I didn't feel that way because I thought there was some evidence that it helped in one of the two trials, and even some patients in the second, quote, failed trial, some of them were helped. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's how it is with many drugs. But there was almost unanimity among the competitors of Biogen <laughs> and about other companies. You'd think maybe they'd say, hey, I don't like this. Biogen beat us to the punch. Quite the opposite. There was really an interest on the part of biotech companies, other pharma companies, in the validation of this approach as being the first apparently disease-modifying drug. So a lot of other companies are now gearing up to make better antibodies. And of course, even before the announcement on Monday, other companies had already said, we, we're making mm. other antibodies and they also look like they clear amyloid, they mm. lower tangles in some cases, and they're associated with at least a modicum of less decline in thinking, uh, which is what we're looking for. We We, we don't really think we're talking about cures here. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be a future therapeutic approach. We're thinking about slowing the progression of Alzheimer's. 
So I remember Dennis uh, and was very um, thankful that he came down. And his was part one of a two-part podcast with Jason Karlowish, a neurologist who's the co-director of the Penn Memory Center, who said he was going to be a reluctant prescriber of Agihelm because he did not believe in the science of it. So it was kind of a fun uh, one-two punch at some of the big medical news of the day with two people coming at it from different perspectives. You made the case in your first opinion essay that aducanumab doesn't live up to its promise. That's right. Why not? Because the data aren't there. Aducanumab may be an effective drug. It is possible that I will, I would hope in a short amount of time, a few years, whatever, be writing an essay that says I can't wait to prescribe aducanumab. But right now on the data that are available, I am not an enthusiastic prescriber. I say that now this week because now I and I can prescribe the drug, and we'll talk now why I, you know, I'm becoming. I have to be an unenthusiastic prescriber of it. Uh, but the problem is the data are not there. The data that were handed to FDA. I agree with the advisory panel that reviewed them. I agree with Tristan Mazzi, the statistician at the FDA. There are a lot of interesting findings there, but when you put it all together, the data are not adequate to say that this is a safe and effective drug for wide prescription within the Alzheimer's clinical care community. And I, I think that is a, a good example of something that I'm proud and almost a little surprised that we've been able to do as well as we have of like capturing important conversations in health, either in the moment or before the moment, because that was we got those episodes done and like we aired them right when the Agilehelm decision came. And, you know, we had a conversation, I think, also over the summer about wastewater management. And now, like, you know, in, in the midst of December, as COVID rates are rising, everyone's talking about that again. We had a conversation about um, the like uh, abortion pills and, and providing abortions at home. And as lots of Supreme Court uh, conversations have been happening around abortion, that's that's been in the news. And so I think we've really been able to to be kind of evergreen, but also timely with a lot of these discussions. You know, the hardest podcast for me to do was the one with um, uh, Joel Zivit and Ira Bedzo, both um, ethicists at Emory University in, in Atlanta, they had submitted a first opinion about a study they had read in the Journal of the American Medical Association, a clinical trial done by some researchers in the Netherlands to look at giving dying people a drug to silence what's known as the death rattle, which is a, a kind of breathing that people have as they approach death. The assumption is that this type of breathing doesn't bother the dying person. What's that based on? Do you know? Look, to be fair, it, it, I suppose it's hard to know. I, I would say that my experience has taught me with many, many patients who have had partially obstructed airways as a consequence of, say, being rendered in an anesthetic state never report afterwards that when their airway was partly obstructed in that way and when they were also in a deeply unresponsive state, which is what a person who is dying generally is, there's no report of distress. It's not recalled. Um, it's not described as painful. I mean, certainly to be short of breath can be painful uh, and can be distressing. And if it appears that that is what's at play, and that looks different than simply a partly obstructed airway, then it would be reasonable and ethical under those circumstances to, say, add 
an extra dose of an opioid. We can't really know the interior experience of someone who is about to die. There's no way to measure it. But my experience uh, of, of similar situation, I think, is reassuring to me that that sort of uh, uh, partly obstructed airway, as I described, is, is very likely not distressing at all to a person who is close to death. Ira, have you been in this situation before with someone who's dying? I have. Um, you know, this is never something I ever like to talk about just on a first date, if you will. Um, but, uh, you know, when my, when my grandmother passed away, um, I remember hearing her um, and I was with, you know, my parents, my aunts and uncles, my cousins. We actually, she's from Montreal. We, we flew into Montreal to see her. We was going to come a week later to visit and then had to come up because she had an aneurysm and then was in the hospital. And I just remember every movement, every noise, we were just clamoring at it for meaning. I mean, I was a much younger man then, so I didn't know as much as I do now. And I felt not only impotent, but unable to express and communicate to the woman I loved who was just lying, lying before me. It's, it's, it's so hard. Yeah. It was difficult for me because two weeks before the podcast, my beloved mother-in-law had died. And um, with all of her family around, and we were all affected in different ways by the death rattle. Yeah, I mean, and and it was a it was a really powerful episode because I think everyone, you having having just gone through that and and those feelings being so raw, really you know, opened it up a little bit for for Ira and Joel both to be you know to to remember their own experiences with that. Yeah, well, and that's why we forced you to do this conversation we're having right now because <laughs> this is my favorite part of the podcast is the the real moments and the the stories and stuff like that. Yeah. No, oh, thank you. Um, were there any other episodes you wanted to go down memory lane on? Well, I'm not going to go 42 long, but I remember the conversation I had with um, Lubab Al-Qureshi. She's a pathologist who worked for more than a decade in Baghdad, and then her family was forced to flee. They came to the U.S. They ended up somewhere in the southwest in Texas, I believe, where she was working the drive-in at a Popeye's chicken. So here's a a physician who graduated, if I remember right, ninth in her class of three, 300 in Baghdad in medical school, working a drive through in Popeyes. When they finally, the family finally landed in New Jersey, she was able to get a job as a pathologist's assistant. When the pandemic struck, the governors of New York and New Jersey both allowed people like Lubab to practice as physicians. And she did, and she was so happy about it. But then she wrote and said how when those decrees expired, she and others like her basically felt like they had been used for the pandemic and then discarded like N95 masks. For one month, I worked in these uh temporary field hospitals and any assignment they give me any uh, task I would go for it even if it is a simple administrative task and even when I worked in the hospital it was a volunteering 
Some of them, they were paid $100 per hour. I was doing it just for volunteering, just to serve the community. Because I was doing this in Iraq. I was volunteering a lot to help the community. So the executive order expired in February, I believe. How did you feel when that happened? I felt that this is unfair. Because if you are able to give us a temporary license, why not changing the regulation? I'm not saying that I'm trying to waive the exam. If you think that the exam is necessary, then go for it, but don't ask me to do an exam for basic science. Ask me to do an exam in pathology. So I think it's unfair to have just a temporary medical license. And with the pandemic, Mm -hmm. The way of thinking should be changed. It was a poignant moment, and it also told me about the opportunities that are being lost for people like her and for the rest of Americans who could benefit from the work that brilliant and and maybe just good physicians from other countries could have here. Yeah, and and if I remember correctly, she was... The only or one of the only people who who called in for our interview, like from the office, like she was at work taking like whatever breaks you could get to, to talk exactly. to us. As, as people might remember, you got an email earlier, like this fall or late over the summer from a listener who was wondering uh, if you were ever going to stop saying at the end of the podcast, uh, uh, be well in these strange and uncertain times. And First of all, I was thrilled to just hear that someone was listening that far to the end. Oh, my God. I couldn't believe that. <laughs> Truly. But I I mean, it was an interesting question because we hadn't really discussed it. It just kind of kept happening every week. What I know that you you thought for a while about whether to to change it or not. And then you kind of decide, you know, you eventually decided to ask for listener input. And we've kind of just we've kept it through the end of the year. But what were you kind of weighing as you thought about whether to, to keep it or not? So the listeners point is not that we're living in strange and turbulent times, but that that's what life is all about. Life is a strange and turbulent time. We're living in the turbulent river of life and we're never getting out of it. Um, And that's the way things are so that I shouldn't be saying be well during this strange and uncertain time because all times are strange and uncertain. It's a great thought, which I'm still thinking about (laughs) (laughs) and we've had discussions about and I'd like to find a way to bring Judith Miller's suggestions in, but I'm still thinking about it and I hope that we'll be able to um, use her thoughts and others' thoughts to maybe alter the tagline in the new year. Well, I think uh, in the strange and uncertain times of the end of this year we're really hurtling towards the finish line we'll be back uh maybe with a new tagline but definitely with the same first opinion spark pat has a few housekeeping notices to end the episode with but thank you for listening and we hope everyone has a great uh, end of 2021 if you've been following the podcast thank you for spending some time with us we're off for the rest of 2021 And the schedule for next year will look a little different than the one-a-week hamster wheel we've been on since starting the podcast in February 2021. We will publish one episode in January 2022 and one in February 
and then we'll resume weekly episodes. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by the amazing, inflappable, and ever-resourceful Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. (laughs) 